Act Two, Introduction, the Second Continental Congress. The First Continental Congress had ended on a note of cautious optimism. King and Parliament had been informed that there were certain acts of Parliament enumerated in the Articles of Association of 1774 that needed to be repealed by September 10, 1775, and that Congress would wait for a response, hopefully favorable. The delegates had planned to meet again in May of 1775 in case a response had not yet been received or if a response had been unfavorable. No word from Britain had been received when 48 delegates from 11 colonies met again on May 10th of 1775. There were familiar faces from the First Continental Congress. The Adamses from Massachusetts, Roger Sherman from Connecticut, John Rutledge from South Carolina, the identical three-member Delaware and Connecticut delegations, and George Washington, Richard Henry Lee, and Richard Bland from Virginia. And there were the new faces of John Hancock from Massachusetts and Benjamin Franklin from Pennsylvania. Influential moderate delegates from the First Continental Congress, such as John Jay from New York and Joseph Galloway from Pennsylvania, were absent. On the other hand, radical Patrick Henry of Virginia was absent as well. Thomas Jefferson arrived on June 21st. On May 11th, Congress adopted a secrecy rule. Nevertheless, Congress, from time to time, authorizes the publication of important decisions and resolutions. The new Congress creates its first committee on May 15th with specific instructions. Provide for the defense of New York without jeopardizing reconciliation with Britain. George Washington and Samuel Adams are members of that committee. The accommodation proposal on taxation offered by the British Parliament is rejected on May 26th, and a letter to the oppressed inhabitants of Canada is adopted on May 29th. On June 3rd, Congress creates seven committees to address twin and increasingly unrealizable objectives, the common defense of the continent and reconciliation with Britain. A day of humiliation, fasting, and prayer to take place on July 20th is approved on June 7th, and a five-member committee is created to draft rules and regulations for the Army on June 14th. George Washington is elected commander-in-chief, and Congress supports the general with their lives and fortunes. Benjamin Franklin writes on June 27th to a friend in Britain, quote, We shall give you one opportunity more of recovering our affections and retaining the connection, and I fear it will be the last, unquote. And on June 30th, Congress passes 69 rules and regulations of war. Congress passes the three-part Olive Branch Petition on July 5th of 1775, and during the next two weeks approves a declaration on the causes and necessity of taking up arms, an address to the people of Great Britain, a speech to the Indians of the six Confederate nations, and yet another moderate petition to the king signed by 59 delegates. On July 21st, Benjamin Franklin introduces 13 Articles of Confederation in an effort to provide a governmental structure for the continent. During the last week of July, Congress approves an address to the people of Jamaica and Ireland. Apparently, the concept of the continent spreads beyond Canada and includes the Caribbean, Bermuda, and Ireland. On July 22nd, a four-member committee is created to report on Lord North's February 1775 motion of reconciliation. Interestingly, these four delegates, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, 
and Roger Sherman are elected to the five-member committee to draft the Declaration of Independence 11 months later. Let's take a break from talk of reconciliation, war, expansion, and independence. On August 1st, Congress adjourns, but they set a date to resume on September 5th. The message is, don't act too precipitously, because the King and Parliament may respond favorably to the petition for a redress of grievances. But be prepared for the worst, namely a rejection of the petition, without the possibility of reconciliation. Congress failed to meet its quorum requirement and therefore did not begin until September 13th. What followed are letters, more letters, committees, more committees, reports and more reports, debates, claims, even more claims, even more committees and more resolutions. Prepare for war? Yes. Consider reconciliation? Yes. Move toward independence? Also yes. There is a complex interplay between a variety of different ideas and events that end up influencing this session. British war actions in Massachusetts, New York, and the South. The King's and Parliament's words and deeds. Pamphlets and memorials circulating among the American people. Changes in the delegations at the Second Continental Congress and the instructions they have received from their states. The 12-hour working days of the Congress. Numerous concerns over trade. Setbacks in Canada, mixed relations with Indian tribes, the absence of effective government based on consent at both the local and continental levels, boundary disputes between the colonies, and a strong desire to return home to friends and family eventually. These gradually turn Congress in the direction of independence. There are, to quote John Adams, many circumstances at work. We must learn patience, he says. Patience is the central feature of this session, as the Continental Congress wrestles with the transition from petition to declaration. On November 1st, the King's speech and parliamentary proclamations of August 1775 arrive in America. Delegate Samuel Ward from Rhode Island wrote this to his wife, quote, We are declared to be rebels. This has a most happy effect here for those who hoped for redress from our petitions. Now give them up and heartily join with us in carrying on the war vigorously, unquote. Ward was optimistic. In a November 2nd letter, he writes that doubt and confusion over whether to reconcile or seek independence are gone and that we are all brother rebels. And yet the possibility for reconciliation, or at least the desire and hope for it, is not over yet. On December 5th, John Dickinson of Pennsylvania summarizes the history of the petition, reconciliation, independence debate. And the debate continues. On December 6th, Congress agrees with the Committee of Proclamations that Americans are not rebels. Rather, they are exercising the right to resist, which is part of the British legal tradition. One step forward, one step back, and two from side to side. The third session of this Second Continental Congress begins on January 1st of 1776. New members are selected and some are replaced. John Adams is re-elected. Once again, we have letters, more letters, more committees, more reports and debates, claims, add more committees on top of that, resolutions from committees and the whole. What is new is the publication of Thomas Paine's Common Sense, the presence of growing war on the continent, and unsettling news from Canada. Congress requests a compilation of every petition made to King and Parliament since 1762. New York is hesitant. 
We desire reconciliation, says John Jay. And James Duane adds that he is, quote, not without some hopes of just and honorable peace, unquote. Samuel Adams, on the contrary, thinks the king's speech of October 26, 1775, that arrived in Philadelphia on January 8th of 1776, provides sufficient grounds to appeal to the laws of nature and seek independence. On February 13th, James Wilson presents his draft of an address to the inhabitants of these colonies, the main point of which is to deny that America is in rebellion and thus no longer dependent on the king. Still, his first wish is that America may be free. John Penn and Robert R. Livingston concur in wanting a reconciliation. They want both freedom for America and dependence on the king. Thomas Nelson of Virginia thinks that the majority of Congress are not yet ready to declare independence. John Adams is thoroughly frustrated, which is probably not surprising, and decides it is time for a decision to go forward and not turn back. On February 17th, he notes that his, quote, measure of opening the ports, etc., labored exceedingly because it was considered as a bold step to independence, unquote. His effort was supported by Robert Alexander of Maryland. He is, quote, almost convinced the measure is right and can be justified by necessity, unquote. By the end of February, there is an even division of opinion in Congress over whether to keep seeking reconciliation or to pursue independence. But the Adamses have to endure another four months of frustration. On April 2nd, for example, John Adams laments that despite all the evidence, the situation continues to waver between hawk and buzzard. When will the delegates finally stop dithering about whether to blame the king or parliament? And how long will they wait for commissioners with new proposals of reconciliation? Yet, he wants the delegates to see for themselves that independence from both king and parliament is critical, and the commissioners will offer nothing but more slavery. In mid-April, Samuel Adams expresses his own frustration with the dithering of the moderate Whigs. The New York, Pennsylvania, Maryland, and South Carolina delegations remain divided over reconciliation or independence. The turning away from the dithering over reconciliation or independence occurred on June 8th, when Congress approves a motion that a serious conversation take place over independence and its consequences. The Journal of the Second Continental Congress does not provide the details of this conversation. However, Thomas Jefferson recreates the debates from memory. In his position, there's no turning back. You can learn more about this pivotal moment in American history at AmericanFounding.org and directly to the page that is the subject of this episode in the link provided in the show notes. Thanks as always for listening.